Good morning. When you walked in, you got a bulletin, and in that bulletin is a handout that says week one doubt at the top of it, and I'd love for you to pull that out. And right underneath the information on the day, time, there's a line that corresponds with that video, and it says, the God I know. What I'd like for you to do is if you have a pen and you got one, you walked in, I would like you to write down three to five words next to that phrase that describe the God you know that you've experienced, that you believe in. And we're going to give you a few seconds to do that. as we begin this series entitled Life with God, one of the things that we're going to talk about again and again is that our life with God is connected to our image of God. And for us to talk about what does it mean to live everyday life through no matter what the circumstance is, that conversation is going to intersect and involve our picture and understanding of that God. And to get us started, I want to bring us back to last week. If you were here, my friend, Pastor Josh, gave a great message about being present with God amidst everyday life. And he said something that has just stuck with me from the first moment I heard him say it. He said that it's possible to be in the presence of someone without being present with them. And it was an idea that I think really spoke to a lot of us last week. And and when it comes to life with God, one of the things we have to realize is that no matter where we go, we are in the presence of God. Psalm 139 reminds us of that, that there is nowhere that we can go where we're outside of God's presence. So the question isn't, is God present with us? The question is, are we present with him? And this message really began out of of another message. On Memorial Day weekend, as we started the summer, uh, I shared a message called With, entitled Lessons from the Vine. And we looked at John 15, uh, this final teaching of Jesus before he goes to the cross, where he talks about how we are to live life with him, drawing on this image of a grapevine. And this message really resonated with a lot of you. And we heard just a ton of feedback And we wanted to dig back into that today as we begin this series, because really this series emerges from that sermon. And and really that sermon emerged from a book that I read a few years ago entitled With by a man named Sky Jathani, and the subtitle is Reimagining the Way You Relate to God. And I don't know about you, but I like pictures. They help me understand things more clearly. And, And in this book, Jathani drew four pictures to illustrate the way that many of us relate to God. The first picture he drew is a picture of life under God. And yes, it does look like God is squashing that person there. And for many of us, the idea we grew up with or we inherited or we chose for ourselves is an idea of God where he's just pressing his thumb down on us. 
And so our goal in this picture is to observe rituals and follow commands to keep God from being angry at us and smiting us. If you feel like you're always walking around eggshells on eggshells around God, you might be living life under God. Worried that if you just do one wrong thing or miss one Sunday or don't give enough or don't pray enough that God's going to have it out for you, you might be living life under God. Others of us live life over God. We're the kind of people that like to solve life, to figure it out, to find the principles, to figure out the problems. And so in this view, we try to create a system where we can control life. If you ever meet somebody and they say, I don't have much time for God, I don't think about God, I don't need God, they might be living life over God where they're just kind of cruising along. Others of us live our life for God. And we want to do something significant. We want to make our lives count. We want to live on purpose. We want to change the world, whatever that means. We want to make a difference. And when we live life for God, we're assuming that if we're successful, productive, difference makers, change workers, world changers, that that will produce a love from God for us. If you've ever felt like You were only useful to God when you did good things, and only then did he love you. You might be living life for God. Others of us live life from God. And in this view, Jothani says that God functions somewhere between cosmic butler and divine genie. He's the divine vending machine that gives us what we want. And we look to him for blessing. We look to him for provision And he's the one that we're trying to keep happy so we can keep things flowing. Whether it's under God, over God, for God, or from God, each of these postures of relating to God come down to two words, fear and control. For many of us, if we were really honest, we're terribly afraid. We're afraid of God. We're afraid for the future. And so our view of God and our relationship with him is a last-ditch effort at trying to reestablish some sense of control in a world that just seems to be going crazy. And what you need to know is that there are a lot of people in this world that are doing all they can to capture your attention based upon fear. No matter what your preferred channel or site is for news, most of those are going to play on your fear. Because if you're afraid, you'll keep watching and you'll keep clicking. And for so many of us, Our life with God is not based on love and grace and mercy and faith. It's based on fear and control. And the reason that I bring that up is that if we're going to live life with God in a way that leads us to thriving abundance, fear and control is not the path to get there. Over the next six weeks, we're going to use the Psalms to give us illustrations of how to do life with God. You say, Scott, why the Psalms? Well, one reason is it's the easiest book in the Bible for you to find. So you never have to worry about you not knowing where it is. You open it to the middle and it's there. But the other reason is that many of us have an incomplete picture of Psalms. 
We think of psalms as therapeutic, comforting, safe, and encouraging words for us with a kind of hallmark veneer or patina laid over it when the actual content of psalms is very different. You see, 48% of the psalms are laments. It's a word that we're going to dig into today. But for now, let's be clear. There's no happy-go-lucky faith here where everything's wonderful all the time. Psalms are raw, gritty, real, and hopeful. And within the Psalms, there is room for all of us, whether we're more like Tigger or Eeyore, whether we're on top of the world or the world is on top of us, whether we're having the best year ever or on September 10th, we're ready for this year to end. There's room for all of us in this book. And so this morning, with this first message, I want you to bring back out that handout and turn your attention to our big idea, which is this. Unexpressed doubt is toxic to life with God. Unexpressed doubt is toxic to life with God. Each week in this series, we're going to look at an, a, a, a season or a circumstance or an emotion that we deal with in terms of our life with God and how this psalm in particular gives us insight about how to navigate that. And so if you have a Bible, if you'd open it up or scroll down within your digital Bible to Psalms 13, that's going to be our text for today, Psalm 13. Now, while you're turning there, I want to remind you that if you haven't yet connected in one of our community groups, this is a great time to join them. Over the next six weeks, they'll be meeting on a particular night of the week. We have groups that meet nearly every night of the week all over the Quad Cities, and they'll be digging into these psalms, talking about them, and looking to apply the lessons from them to their lives. And so if you got to the lobby to our community group table, you can learn more about a group that meets near you and on a night of the week that works for you. But beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 13, we're going to learn what I call three lessons from a song of doubt. And here's how David begins. He's the writer of this particular psalm. He says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? The first lesson that David teaches us is that healthy relationships produce unguarded conversation. Healthy relationships produce unguarded conversation. This conversation that David begins here with God is an unguarded, unfiltered conversation. He's letting God have it in a very honest way. He says things like, how long, God? He says that four times. Will you forget me forever? Will you hide your face from me forever? How long will I have sorrow in my heart? Will that be all day? Will my enemy always be exalted over me? I mean, he's being brutally honest with God. And the truth is, many of us have grown up with an understanding that we can't be this honest with God. If we feel this way, 
we for sure can't say it to God, and we for sure can't say it in church. And so for many of us, we just push those things down. They're true for us in the moment. They're how we really feel, but we don't ever share them. And the reason why I believe Psalm 13 is in the Bible is that it's a reminder first to the people of Israel that this was their songbook and to us thousands of years later that this is a safe place to be honest with God. And that God wants to have an unguarded, unfiltered conversation with us. If I was to ask you this question, how would you answer? Is this a safe place I can is this a place I can be safe to share? See, when you come into a church for the first time or you join a community group for the first time or, or you get involved in a relationship for the first time, one of the questions you're asking is, is this a safe place to share? You may even be asking that question about God. Well, I can't promise you that every relationship, every church, and every community group is a safe place to share, but I can tell you this, that God wants to have a relationship with you where you have an unguarded conversation with him. How do I know that? Because he already knows what's deep within your soul. He knows. And whether you're having an unguarded conversation with him out loud about it, he already knows those things. So why not stop the suppressing and the stuffing and give voice to those things to him? You see, the Israelites felt like God was a safe place to lament. And so they did. The psalm book is 150 chapters long, and 73 of those chapters are laments. That's 48%. You say, Scott, what's a lament? Well, a lament is a crying out to God in response to a disorienting event. One of the writers that I studied for this series is a man named Walter Brueggemann, and in writing about laments, here's what he says. Lament is caused by disorienting events or circumstances that make unsense of the world we try so hard to render sensible. We've all had moments in our life where suddenly, in an instant, life went from making sense to making unsense. And the response of our heart in that circumstance is to lament, is to cry out to God. And so the majority of the Psalms, by category, fit this description. The people crying out to God in the midst of disorienting events and circumstances. And this type of literature, this poetry, follows a very predictable format. These laments follow this five-piece format. They begin with unguarded commentary, like we've just read. They shift to accusation where the people cry out against God for what he has done or hasn't done, what he has said or hasn't said. They begin to then recall and look back in the past at who God was and what God said, what God's promises were. Ultimately, they came to a place of surrender. We'll talk about that later. And finally, they conclude with gratitude. That's the format of these prayers, these songs of lament. 
And they're a reminder to us from the middle of the Bible that we can be honest with God about our doubts because there's no better place to be honest with God. And the truth is, many of us grew up in environments or were told or got the unspoken message that faith was incongruent with doubt. That if you were a person of faith, you couldn't have doubts. And if you did, you better not talk about them. And so the untold secret for many of us is we've carried along an experience that we haven't felt permission to share about. One of my favorite writers, I believe he's a gift to the church in this era, is a man named Tim Keller. He's a pastor in Manhattan, and in his book, The Reason for God, he speaks directly to this. He says, a faith without some doubts is like a human body with no antibodies in it. He says, people who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask the hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. There are people who are living today in Fort Myers, Florida, and in Tampa, and in Naples that are vulnerable to what they call storm surge. It's when anywhere from 10 to 15 to 30 feet of water come as a huge wave. And they've boarded up their house. Hopefully they've evacuated. But if that storm surge comes and the ground underneath their home has eroded, this storm they didn't plan for or expect will show up and it will wash their home away. And in the same way, Keller is saying, if we don't speak to and address our doubts, then they will erode our faith so that when someone questions it or an experience challenges it, it'll be in grave danger. And for some of us, what makes this worse is our image of God. If you live life under God, you can't question him because you're afraid he'll lash out at you. If you live life over God, you can't question him or it'll shake up the whole system you've set up to understand life. If you live life for God, then it'll put into doubt your whole purpose and reason for living. And if you doubt God, then maybe it means the vending machine won't work the next time. This is why our view of God is so important, because if we adopt one of these inaccurate, incomplete pictures of God our life with God will not thrive. If you're a parent, one of the challenges you face with raising your kids is helping them to navigate this season of their life and learn to come to terms with the doubts that will inevitably come. And I'd recommend to you, if you're a parent, that you check out a book called Sticky Faith by Kara Powell, who's one of the nation's leading experts about teenage spirituality. She's a professor at Fuller Seminary. If you work in our church or another place with the next generation, her book, Growing Young, is kind of a larger view. And within her scientific research, she has found that 7 out of 10 high school students harbor significant doubts about God and faith. 
It's normal in that period of life, it seems, to process doubts about your faith. Yet she has found half of those students talk with a ministry leader or peer about their struggles. She says one of the factors that determines whether a young people's faith will positively or negatively impact the development of their faith is if they have opportunities to express their doubt. Let me summarize this. She says research has shown it's not doubt that's toxic to faith. It's silence. So if you want to have a thriving relationship and life with God, if you want to have a thriving life with God in the life of your child, the worst thing you can do is tell them they can't ask, they can't ask any questions. The worst thing you can do is create an environment where they can't express their doubt. Remember what we said earlier? Unexpressed doubt is toxic to life with God. So it shouldn't worry you if they express doubts or questions. It should worry you if they tell you they feel like they can't be honest about that or they can't hold on to that. David continues in verse 3. He says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death lest my, enter, my enemies say, I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. The second reminder we get from David here about navigating doubt is David tells us, cry out to God before you complain to others. Cry out to God before you complain to others. Here in verse 3, we see this reminder that David is not turning to the people around him with this complaint and accusation and this lament. He's turning to God. He says, consider and answer me, O Lord, lest I sleep the sleep of death. He's being poetic here, but I'm thinking that's a pretty bad ending. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Question for you, if you were really honest if I was really honest, how many of us would say that we call or text someone else about our current problem before we cry out to God? Vast majority of us, right? And we do that because it's just so much easier. It's, quickly, it's quicker to pull out your phone and send off a text. It's quicker to hit speed dial for that person you always call. You get feedback from them a lot faster. Man, that's terrible. I feel so bad for you. Or a a, a hand on the shoulder or a hug or, you know, a a certain emoji, you know, that makes you feel better. Like, that really stinks, you know. I won't really say which emoji that is, but there is one for that. But the thing is, calling someone else, complaining to them, doesn't change the circumstance. I have some great friends, and I'm going to guess you have some great friends who've been through some really difficult days with you. And their support made a difference. But as great as those friends were, they couldn't change the actual circumstance. They couldn't make the diagnosis go from malignant to benign. They couldn't make you from fired back to hired. They couldn't make your marriage go from the rocks to the beach. So, so often the people that we turn to with our doubt 
are not those who can actually change it. If you go back to the top of your sheet where you made the notes about those words about God that you believe, I'm going to hazard a guess that less than five of you in the room, maybe none of you, picked the word treasure. It's not a word we typically use to describe God. He's my treasure. But the thing is, when doubt comes, when crisis comes, all of us turn to our treasure. It's happening in the lives of people in Florida right now. It happened in the lives of people in Oregon, in Montana, California, Texas in the last few weeks. A crisis came to their home, and what do you do? You run to get the things in your home that you value the most so you can preserve them. And the truth is, for many of us, the list of things that we treasure above God is long. And so it's no wonder that we're not turning to him, but we're turning to those favorite sites online. That store that we go shop in. That bottle that gives us a feeling of numbing out. That spot on the couch where we can turn off our brain and binge watch something. See, the thing is, when crisis comes, we all run to our treasure. We all run to our God. And the reason why many of us don't cry out to God is that God is not our treasure. You say, Scott, it seems weird that you would turn to the very one that you have doubts about. Yeah, it does. Except if he was the one that you treasured above everything else. Except if you felt like he was the one who could take it. And before you think that this is something where I'm just talking about your challenges and not my own, I've had moments like you have where it felt life, like life just shattered apart. I mean, we all have dreams and pictures and ambitions of how we think life is going to be, and that's what carries us through the difficult seasons. We're working towards something. We're planning towards something. We're, we're moving towards that thing. Well, what happens when you get there and it's not what you thought it would be? That was me. I took four years of seminary and I crammed them into three. I literally had a moment. I didn't say this the first service because I wasn't, I guess, honest enough. I literally had a moment my last year of seminary where I didn't want to read another page of the Bible again. Yeah, what? Because when you're required to check off the Bible reading every day on a list as an assignment, sometimes it just loses its power. And I was burned out but I was hopeful because I'd been working at a church part-time and I was working towards this full-time ordained pastor dream. Well, then 2008 hit and 15% of my church was unemployed. More than that were underwater in their mortgage. We cut the church budget by 20% and cut the salaries by 7.5% so no one would lose their jobs. And I apparently didn't do the math. And so I said, hey, I would like to apply for a full-time position. And they said, Scott, do the math. We literally don't have the money for that. And that's what happened to my dream. 
And over the next two years, I spent more time working other jobs than I did my job at the church. And I watched other friends begin their careers while it felt like mine was on hold. And I started wondering aloud, not to God, to other people, what's the deal? And I blamed them, and I accused them, and finally one day my wife said to me, Scott, you've had these blinders on about how you thought this was going to go. Maybe you need to begin talking to God about expanding your perspective. Maybe he's doing something different than you thought he was going to do. And it revealed to me that my life with God was not where I thought it was because if it was, I wouldn't have spent my time complaining to others. I would have turned to him. If you're going through doubt, I want to challenge you today that instead of complaining to others that you take those things to God. This is how David finishes this difficult psalm. He says, but... And I have to tell you, whenever you read the Bible, pay attention for the buts because everything changes. He says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The third lesson we learn from David is that we are to remember that doubt is temporary while God's covenant love is eternal. Doubt is temporary, while God's covenant love is eternal. Now look back here in in the verses. Why does he say but? He says, in light of everything else I've said, all the things I've cried out to you, but I have trusted. What does he trust in? Does he trust in what God is going to do? Does he trust in something that's changed in his circumstances? Does he trust in this friend he cried out to? No, he says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. Your Bible translation, if you have a different one, may say covenant love. And that word, covenant love, is the Hebrew word hesed. You think about kind of hawking a loogie, hesed, you know, it kind of gives you a little bit of that idea, you know, and we're heading to cold and flu season, you'll remember that later. But the idea of hesed is it's God's love not based upon feeling, circumstance, or action in the moment. It's God's love based upon the promise he made. The beginning of the Old Testament in the book of Genesis and in the book of Exodus, we're reminded that God makes this covenant with the people, this promise to them of who he is going to be. And so David turns and says, this is the moment I'm in where I feel doubt, but I'm going to remember that God's character is bigger than any moment that I am in. And if you're struggling with doubt, I want to challenge you this morning with an idea. I want to challenge you to shift your view of God from a clock to a calendar. I want to challenge you to shift viewing God's work in your life with him from a clock to a calendar. We live in a world that is dominated by the here and now. 24-7 news cycle. Social media crisis. These days we're in, they feel unending. And so we get so caught up in the challenge of the moment that we perceive God only based upon this point in time. 
And so when God doesn't show up or change today, well, he's not real. He doesn't care. We're measuring God by a clock when we should be measuring him by a calendar. If you only view God based upon what he has done or hasn't done, has said or hasn't said today, you will never get to a thriving life with God. You have to step back and say, who has God been over a longer period of time? Because you and me, we get maybe 80, 85 years if we're lucky, 90. And we're in relationship with an eternal God. We need to stop measuring him based upon our timetable and start measuring him based upon his. Let me say it another way. We may doubt because of God's action or inaction, but we can rediscover trust because of his character. And if you're dealing with doubt today, it might be good for you to step back and consider like David did all the ways that God has dealt bountifully with you in the past and interpret this moment in time in light of that. Doesn't mean your feelings aren't valid. Doesn't mean you don't have a space to share those doubts with God. Doesn't mean that those things that are going on in your soul aren't real and true. But you must interpret them in a context that's bigger than the moment you're just in. And that's why there's this lament form. Yeah, there's space for you to cry out to God, but the conversation doesn't end there. It goes to recalling who God has been. It goes to a surrender because only God can change the circumstances. And then it begins with gratitude over all the things God has already done. So as we conclude today, I want to share some next steps with you that will challenge you to apply this to your life. And the first one is I want to challenge you to increase your honesty with God. No matter where you are, I want to challenge you to be even more honest with God. You say, Scott, how far is far enough? Well, go to the point where you're uncomfortable, and that's probably a good start. I want you to be uncomfortably honest with God. Why? Because he already knows. And it's not for him. It's for you. So whether that's in your silent prayers or your prayers out loud, or in the things you write down, increase your honesty before God. I don't know of a person, present or past, who I look up to when it comes to faith, who I don't discover had shockingly honest conversations with God. It seems to me that a thriving life with God is directly related to an honesty before God. So increase your honesty before God. Second, I want to challenge you to help others give voice to their doubts. Help others give voice to their doubts. There are people around you who are struggling to be honest with God and you can help them give voice to those. And you can do that by helping them to take steps after they're honest. I I went to a a university, and the college that I was in for Christian studies had a motto taken from Anselm of Canterbury, who, this is the English translation of his words from Latin, the motto of our college was faith-seeking understanding. 
We believed, but we wanted to grow in our understanding. And if you have someone you know who's wrestling with doubt, I want to challenge you to help them grow in their understanding. And one of the ways you do that is how you respond when they share doubts with you. Because how they share a doubt with you today and how you respond to it determines whether they're ever going to tell you the truth in the future. I don't know about you, but when I share something with somebody and they shot me down and shut me down and said what I shared wasn't real, I just made the decision that it was easier to never tell them the truth again. It may sound harsh, but I've got other friends that I can be honest with if I have people in my life who aren't going to give me the space to be true. And so if somebody shares a doubt with you, here's some examples from Kara Powell of how you could respond. You could say, I don't know, but... You could say, you know, that, that's an important question. You could say, let's, let's find out together. I'll help you with that. You'd say, I, you know, I've wondered that too. Only say that if you really have. Don't lie to them. Just throwing that out there. Um, you know, I wonder, what start up that question you? What's going on inside? Remind them that God is big enough to handle that question. Thank them. Thanks for having the courage to say that out loud and trusting me with it. And then say, hey, who could we go to to ask about that? How you respond to doubt, especially if you're a parent, determines if you're going to hear more in the future. And then finally, the third step I want to challenge you with is I want you to invite God to redeem your doubts. Invite God to redeem your doubts. Some of you have been wrestling with some of these questions for so long, you've lost sight of the truth that God is a God who wastes nothing. And the reason why we started with the lament is what a lament does is it turns doubts into offerings. And for some of you, the challenge today is to take the doubts you've been harboring silently and lay them before God as an offering and say, God, I want you to redeem this. God, would you redeem this? Would you do something good through this? I don't know if you know this, but there are people who know that you have doubt, whether you say it or not. And they're watching you navigate this season of your life. And if you continue to continue to continue to continue to continue, even while you have doubts, that could be how God redeems your doubt. Because they look at you and go, you know what? They have doubts and they're continuing to take one step at a time. And if they can do that, maybe I can too. If their God can take their doubts, maybe he can take mine too. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you're a big enough God to handle the doubts that emerge in our hearts from circumstances that disorient us. God, I have to believe that there are millions of people across our country today that are experiencing circumstances they didn't plan for or expect. We thank you for this, this reminder from Psalms, this, this permission to be honest with you, to take our doubts and concerns and questions and feelings and lay them at your feet. 
and then to begin to process them with you. We thank you that this is a place where we don't have to put a fake face on and pretend that life is perfect and we never struggle. God, I pray for my friends in this room who are going through difficult days that they didn't plan for or expect. I pray that you would redeem their doubts and meet them in the midst of that struggle. I pray that they would begin an unguarded conversation with you and that they would begin to see more broadly and more fully who you are even amidst this crisis. God, we want to live with you today and eternally. And we pray that we can build a life with you that is filled with space for who we really are, where we really are. We pray that we'd encounter you in the days to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.